Writer Dan Miller in his book, Wisdom Meets Passion, tells of growing up in a conservative rural family in Ohio. They had no radio or TV in the house, and his father didn't believe in getting the newspaper, so Dan didn't get much of the outside information. However, he did find that he liked to read, so his mother would take him to the library, and he would get books and bring them home and read them, and that's where he got most of his information. But when he was about 12 years old, something happened that would change his life dramatically. He was introduced to a phonograph recording. Anybody here remember the old phonograph? That Yeah, some of you are old enough to do that. Fabian is old enough now. He wouldn't have last week, but now he remembers the phonograph. At any rate, this recording was by a motiva motivational speaker named Earl Nightingale. And the record was titled, The Strangest secret. And on the recording, Dan Miller heard this gravelly-voiced man say that he could be anything he wanted to be. All he would have to do was change his thinking. In his recorded talk, Nightingale introduced Miller to six words that he said would drastically change his life. We become what we think about. And the entire recording was based on that thought. We become what we think about. Now, I'm not sure that I agree with that statement. If that were true, I would look like a chocolate chip cookie because <laughs> I think an awful lot about chocolate chip cookies. And some of you maybe would have some other things that you would look like if you became what you think about. But uh, at any rate, that's just based on the scripture that says, for as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. Well, Miller was influenced by those words and he was also influenced by a famous preacher that day, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, and his power of positive thinking. Now, this approach to life was radically different from the more rigid way of thinking in which Dan Miller had been raised. We become what we think about. That meant he could become more than he had ever dreamed of being if he just thought the right things. He knew such ideas would not be welcome in his house, so he hid the recording under his mattress and only brought it out late at night when his parents were asleep and listened to it over and over again. It had captured his imagination, as it captured the imagination of hundreds of thousands of other people over the years. But the question I want us to consider this morning, have you ever had something capture your imagination? Einstein once said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. What is imagination? It's a mental picture of something, usually something desirable, that could become a reality if we do our part. Sometimes it comes to us as a dream, sometimes as a vision, sometimes just as a thought. But often this dream or vision is the first step towards a great accomplishment. And today I want to consider a man in the Bible who was driven by a great dream, a great vision. More important, he was driven by God's dream. And because he was driven by God's dream, he accomplished great things. Nearly 2,500 years before this man, the land of Judah had been totally destroyed by the Babylonians. And most of its citizens were driven into exile. Jews were dispersed across the known world of that day. Jerusalem lay in ruins. 
It was a dark and desolate time for God's people. And it was at such a time that God planted a dream in the heart of a righteous Jewish man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived in the capital city of Susa in Persia, which is now Iran. And he was the royal cupbearer to Artaxerxes, king of the Persians. Now, the title of cupbearer perhaps brings up the picture of a servant bringing a cup and handing it, but it was much more than that. The cupbearer was in high ranks in the royal courts. His duty was to serve the drinks at the royal table. See, there was a constant fear in the mind of the kings that somebody was going to try to kill them, so they had a royal cupbearer, a man who was greatly trusted to bring him the cup of wine. He had to guard against the poison that could be planted in the king's cup, so much so that he had to swallow a bit of it first before handing it to the king. And the fact that the king trusted him so thoroughly often gave him a position of great influence. I mean, if you're trusting someone with your life and they make a suggestion to you, you're probably going to listen at least. And the king listened to Nehemiah. Well, one day Nehemiah's relative, a man named Hanani, was visiting Nehemiah. And he was, familiar, <clears throat> he was familiar with the plight of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he shared with Nehemiah the poverty and the oppression of the people who remained in Jerusalem and shared with him the total disrepair, the destruction of the, of the city. Nehemiah broke down and wept. And he went into a time of mourning and fasting and praying over the plight of his people. And God gave Nehemiah a vision, a dream, a hope, an aspiration, whatever you want to call it. Nehemiah decided that the city must be rebuilt. The walls needed to be reconstructed. Now, that's probably an important thought to interject here. Be careful what you pray for because God may call upon you to answer your prayer. I often had people come to me in the church and say, you know, somebody really ought to be doing such and such. And I'd usually say, well, no, you're the only person who's brought that up. That probably means God wants you to do it. And sometimes they say, sure, I'd be glad to. And other times they say, oh, not me, but somebody ought to. Be careful what you pray for because God may use you to answer that prayer. Well, a dream was born in Nehemiah's heart to go to Jerusalem to help his people. And I think that's the way every great work begins. God puts a dream in someone's heart. A little more than 150 years ago, a British citizen by the name of David Livingston read the words of Robert Moffat concerning Africa. Robert Moffat wrote these words, From where I stand, I can see the smoke of 10,000 villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. With those words, a dream was born in David Livingston's heart, and he set his gaze on Africa. He began his journey by tracing the Zambezi River on that great continent to its source. In search of that source, Livingston traveled 11,000 miles on foot through uncharted jungles. He suffered unbelievable dangers and hardships along the way. He was attacked by savage beasts and nearly killed. But his dedication won the heart of many of the native villagers he encountered. 
In later years, Livingston was wracked by disease, attacked by animals, menaced by hostile tribes. Repeatedly, he was robbed and abandoned by his own carriers. Yet he marched on with his Bible and brought Jesus Christ to much of Africa. He pressed on, in fact, until his body could go no further. On May 1st, 1893, he was found dead on his knees in the position of prayer in a crude hut in a village of Alala, Africa. He had been true to his dream, and today millions of Africans are Christians because of men and women who, like David Livingston, gave all their lives to fulfill a dream God planted in their hearts. I'm going to take a little side trip here from Nehemiah. I want to tell you three stories, true stories of missionary work in Africa. Sorry, Shirley isn't here because she would enjoy it. Well, Sheila's here. She'll enjoy it. Missionary stories. A pastor friend of mine told us at a ministerial association meeting one day that a few weeks before that on a Wednesday night, just as he was beginning his Bible study, a quiet little lady who hardly ever said anything stood up and said, Pastor, I don't want to interrupt you, but I have to. God just gave me this terrible, terrible burden for the stewards, and we all need to gather at the altar and pray for them right now. Well, the stewards were a couple in Africa with their children, living in a mission compound, ministering to those around them. So the pastor said, okay, we'll do that. And they gathered at the altar, and they prayed. They remembered one man who didn't often pray out loud, prayed a powerful prayer, ending it with these words, God, I ask you to put the blood of the lamb all around that compound so that no one in there is killed and the compound isn't harmed. Well, they prayed for quite a while. They dismissed and started to go home. And a few of the ladies said, we're going to stay and pray a while longer. When the pastor went down at 8 o'clock in the morning, those ladies were just leaving. He said, you've been praying all night. They said, every time we thought it was time to leave, God would just lay it on our hearts that we couldn't leave yet. But just a few minutes ago, we all fell to peace. And so, yeah, we're leaving. Well, a few weeks later, the lady who had had the burden brought a letter that she had received from the missionary uh, that they had been praying for. And in it, she wrote, we've had a rather traumatic time here. A few weeks ago, two of the warring tribes gathered outside our compound. It was early in the morning, and we were in prayer in the chapel, and we didn't know what was going on. One of the men went out to check and saw that these warring tribes were fighting each other, killing each other, and in time burnt down the entire village that the compound surrounds, or that, that surrounds the compound. A lot of people were killed. Nearly all of the cattle and sheep were killed. But God protected us. We were not harmed at all. So the amazing thing is, when my husband went out in the morning to walk around the compound to see what had happened, someone had in blood written on the wall, this structure and these people belong to God. Don't touch them. Isn't that amazing? Two points from that, that there's probably more, but two that I want to point out is one, when God lays something on your heart, don't say, oh, man, i got to stop tomorrow and pray for it. Pray right then. 
that's what happened with this. And the second thing is, God hears and answers prayer. Now, I'm sure, well, I know for a fact that there are other missionaries who have died. There are other compounds that have been burned and destroyed. But that time, in that place, God answered those prayers. When we have an urgent need, we pray. Second story doesn't have quite such a happy, well, maybe it does. Story of missionary told of a woman who came to the chapel service every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. Her big old dog always came with her and lay at her feet. And every time the service was over, this lady would go up to the altar and pray, and her dog would go up there with her. And after a few trips, he would sit down and put his paws on the altar and put his head down and close his eyes and wouldn't move until she was done praying. She was praying for her husband, who was a terrible alcoholic, a very vicious man, and she knew that every time she went home, he would beat her, and yet she went back again and again and again. One night, she went home, and he beat her so badly that she died during the night. A few weeks later, this man realized that the dog kept disappearing for a few hours throughout the week. So one Sunday morning, he followed this dog to see where he was going, and the dog went to church. He sat down in the second row, and the man thought, why in the world does this dog come here? So he sat down to see what was bringing the dog back. He listened to the sermon, listened to the singing. At the close of the service, the dog went up and knelt at the altar, as he did all those months with his owner. The man was so touched by that, he went to the altar. And the pastor went over to speak to him, and he said, this dog showed me what my wife was doing. She was praying for me. And I've got to give my life to her, Jesus. And that morning, that man was saved. Persistent, consistent, insistent prayer always brings results. And too often, you know, we'll pray for someone five or six times and we think, well, you know, not doing any good. Persistent, consistent, insistent prayer. And one last story. Uh, a missionary that traveled around the United States uh, with the Salvation Army told the story. A missionary friend of his, and I don't know of what denomination, but just to keep your attention, we'll say he was a Nazarene. Uh, a missionary in Africa told uh, my friend this story that a young man traveled through three villages to come to the fourth village where this little uh, mission station was to visit relatives. They had a service every night, and the young man attended every night. On Sunday morning, he gave his life to Jesus. And as he was leaving to return, he said to the missionary, I will be back next Sunday. Well, the missionary kind of doubted it because it was a several-hour walk and to be there in time for the service, the young man would have to leave his home about 2 o'clock in the morning, walking through a dark jungle. Well, the next Sunday morning, the young man got up at 2 o'clock, and he started walking. He got into the jungle a little ways and saw some shadows and heard some rustling of leaves and thought, what am I doing? There's 
wild animals here that could attack me. There's snakes that could bite me. There's poisonous insects. And who knows what other tribal members might be here. This is foolish of me. I should go back. And they thought, no, I promised the missionary I'd be there. I've got to keep my promise. So he started walking, or he kept walking. And a thought came to his mind, and he prayed, God, Jehovah, keep me faithful all the way to the church. Don't let me turn back. And God put a song in his heart. I don't know if I can sing it or not. <laughs> if I change keys, forgive me, because I've... Well, I never, never sang at all until Pam convinced me to. And then she uh, usually sits at the piano and, and works with me till I get it right. But anyway, the song went something like this. Till the day dawns and the shadows flee away. Till the day dawns and the shadows flee away. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, keep me faithful all the way. Till the day dawns and the shadows flee away. And he sang that and sang it and sang it over and over and over again. And soon he thought, I hear other people singing with me. And as he came to the next village, he realized that the entire village had been awakened by his singing and had come out to see who was singing. And they had learned it because he sang it so many times, so they started singing with him to encourage him. Well, when he got there, one of the leaders of the village said, who is this great Jehovah that you're singing about? So he told them about Jesus and why he was walking in the jungle in the middle of the night because nobody in their right mind did that. Well, some of them said, we want to go with you. So they started towards the second village, all of them singing the same chorus. And when they got to the second village, they found people coming out singing with them. And they too said, what are you doing out in the jungle in the middle of the night? And who is this great Jehovah? They told them or he told them, and they joined, many of them, the trip to the third village. And the same thing happened. And as they were coming into the village where the church was, they were still singing. The dawn had come. It was light, but they were still singing that same chorus. And all of those in the village came rushing out to meet them. And that morning, all of those people who had followed him through the jungle gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And now that missionary had a problem because he had four villages that wanted churches. So each day of the week, he would leave and go to another village, teach, preach, hold a service, and then stay the night and the next day go to the next one. But I thought, how many of us often are in the jungle spiritually in the middle of the night with shadows and wild animals and snakes and insects and whatever else, and we say, oh, I'm too scared. I'm not going on. But till the day dawns and the shadows flee away, we need to be faithful all the way till the day dawns. And I know a lot of people in this congregation, and for some reason, I, I suppose it's because we're not the pastors anymore. We don't know all of you. <laughs> 
Uh, a lot of the names we see uh, don't really put a face with it, but we hear pastor talk about people who are going through hard times. I think how many people in this congregation have gone through the hard times, through the jungles of life, through the great losses, through the hurts, through the pain. But we can say, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, keep me faithful all the way. And I just realized that clock is not working. Because, well, maybe it is. You say, the last time I looked, I thought it said the same time, but maybe it didn't. At any rate, I promise I'll be done by the time the button in my mouth dissolves. Well, Nehemiah became committed to the dream God had given him. And he said, God, keep me faithful all the way to the conclusion of this dream. He applied for permission from the king to go to Jerusalem, and the king appointed him as governor and sent with him all the supplies he would need to rebuild the walls. When he got there, he made a secret inspection of the city walls that now lay in ruin and resolved that the walls had to be rebuilt. Critics said it could never be done. Have you ever heard that? It cannot be done. We just can't do it. But if God is in the dream, it can be done. When God is in the dream and you're the answer to that dream, you can do it. Maybe hard, but you can do it. Critics said it couldn't be done. Israel's enemies were threatened by the change and they were determined to stop it. They taunted Jeremiah and they tried to trap him and, and to destroy his work. At one time they said, Nehemiah, come down here. We need to talk to you. And, and I think this is a great quote. He said, I am about great work. I cannot come down. I'm doing something good for God. Don't bother me is really what he said. Don't interrupt my work for God. Don't encourage me to stop what is hard to do. I'm doing a great work and I cannot stop. And doing a great work is always the best answer we can give to our critics. I'm just doing God's work. John Wesley, as you know, was a great English preacher in the 1700s and founder of the Methodist and the entire holiness movement. What you may not know is that he was considered quite a spiffy dresser. And after service one Sunday morning, in which he was wearing the latest fashion tread, a bow tie with long ribbons, one of the women in the congregation came to him and said, Pastor Wesley, can you accept a bit of criticism? Only I'm sure she said it with an English accent. And he said, well, of course. So re she reached into her purse and took out scissors and cut off the ribbons from the tie and said, holy men don't wear ribbons on their ties. He said, madam, can you accept a bit of criticism? And she said, well, certainly. He said, may I borrow your scissors? And she handed it to him. He said, now stick out your tongue. <laughs> okay. I thought it was funny. You don't think it's funny? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Sorry I bothered with the story. I was just... Of course, he had no intentions of cutting off her tongue. I don't think. But how often criticism 
hurts. And how easy it is to criticize. Have you noticed if you aren't really careful, you can always find something to criticize? Just, just some little thing about anybody. I wish Pam wouldn't play the organ so loud as somebody else says, sure wish she'd turn up the volume because I can't hear it. Somebody else says, wish James would play the melody instead of harmony on the euphonium. And somebody else says, boy, I really enjoy listening to that harmony. It just adds so much. I wish the preacher didn't use overheads because it's distracting. And someone else says, boy, I'm so glad he uses those overheads. Boy, am I showing my age. Uh, PowerPoint. I'm so glad he uses them because it makes everything so much clearer. Boy, I wish we had chairs instead of pews. They're more comfortable. Boy, I'm glad we got pews because it just looks more like a church. You know, on and on and on. To everything, someone can find a criticism. But we need to be careful not to criticize because criticism hurts and it destroys and it stops good things from happening. Well, Nehemiah didn't accept the criticism. He said, I'm doing a great work. Don't bother me. I'm not going to stop. Go ahead and criticize. We're going to get this wall done. And he challenged the devoted Jews of the area to give, to work, to build, to sacrifice, that the walls of the city might be rebuilt. And they responded as the people often respond when there's a challenge to a dream. The dream was greater than any of them had ever had or, or ever thought possible. But when challenged by the right leader, they saw, oh, we can do it. And they did it. They responded in a wonderful way. They responded because of their faith in God and also because of their faith in Nehemiah, the leader. They knew that Nehemiah was a man of character, a man of God, a man they could trust. They knew that he was making even greater sacrifices than he was asking them to make. He was appointed there as the governor, which meant he should sit in the governor's palace or whatever place the governor had to live after the city was destroyed. And the people should work hard and bring him money so he could live well. But instead, he was living in the same ramshackle shacks that they were living in, eating the same food they were eating, and working as hard as they were at lifting these big rocks to build the wall. Now, I tell you all of that to bring us to the scripture for today, which is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. Just going to read a few selected verses, uh, starting with verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all of the people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Israel the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of Ezra, or to the book of the law, I'm sorry, as read by Ezra, the scribe. Can you imagine standing from sunup until noon, 
I have a hard time standing here for 20 minutes. But they stood all day listening to the word of God. Skipping down to verse 5, Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, their great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And to verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. When God gives us big dreams and we fulfill them with his help, we're filled with joy. You know, several times we've heard different people tell us that one, I think it was an Easter Sunday many years ago, there were over 700 people in this building. I'm glad I wasn't here because I'm somewhat claustrophobic and I'm not sure I could take that many. But I'm sure they worked hard for that. They dreamed of it. They, they wanted to fill the building with people for Jesus Christ. And it's an accomplishment. And when that happens, you're, you're excited. But they weren't excited at first because when they heard the law of the Lord being read to them, they realized how unfaithful they had been. And they started to weep. Until Nehemiah reminded them that they had accomplished what God had wanted them to do. And they could rejoice because the joy of the Lord is their strength. It was the custom in that day to always stand when the word of God was being read. And I think we usually do that. And when Ezra read the sacred readings, the people raised their hands and said, Amen, Amen. They lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord because the word of God touches our hearts. Can you see in your mind's eye this beautiful, beautiful event taking place? I think it's a moving scene. After all the hard work, after all the sacrifice, after all the earnest prayers, now they had their own city and they had their own sacred book and tears flowed down their faces. And Nehemiah stands to speak to them and says, don't mourn. Now, I imagine, I don't know this, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I imagine after the festivities ended and the crowds dispersed, Nehemiah went off by himself and wept tears of joy and thanksgiving and gave praise to God. The dream that he had dreamed way back in Persia had become real. The walls were rebuilt. He probably said something like, thanks, God, for helping me see it through to the end. And again, in my imagination, God said, thank you, Nehemiah, for being faithful to the end. We're told that Dwight L. Moody was visiting England when he heard evangelists of the day 
Henry Varley say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to the Holy Spirit. Moody said to himself, he said, a man. He didn't say a great man or educated man or a rich man. He simply said, a man. The world hasn't seen what God can do through a man who totally commits himself. He said, I will be that man. I will wholly commit myself to the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how much you know about Dwight L. Moody, but he went back home and saw the tenement houses in Chicago and gathered a bunch of boys and started to teach them about Jesus. Had Sunday school class in the stairway of the tenement house and went on to become a preacher and built the largest church, the largest membership any church in Chicago had ever had up to that day. It may have been surpassed in recent days. Built an enormous building with a, a Bible college. He started out as a shoe salesman, but did great things because he said, I will wholly commit myself to the Holy Spirit. And I think Henry Varley wouldn't mind if I paraphrased him a little bit. The world has not seen what a man or a woman can do who is wholly committed to the Holy Spirit. Commitment, character, conscience, compassion, a deaf ear to the critics, total and complete consecration. These are the marks of the successful dreamer of every generation. These are the people who change the world. I don't know what great dreams you have. And you know, for some great dreams might be building the largest church in Chicago. And for others that might just be witnessing to the neighbor who lives next door. No difference. If God's given you a dream, that's your dream. And no one can complete that dream but you. I met a lady yesterday, uh, I don't know if, if I shared this or not, but Saturdays I spend most of the day driving Uber, uh, picking people up and taking them where they want to go. And uh, first I did it for the money, and now I do it because I enjoy it. Uh, met some fantastic people. But this lady got in the car, and we drove a couple blocks, and she said, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I am. She said, I don't mean are you not Jewish or not Muslim. I mean, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior from sin? I said, yes, I do. And she said, wonderful. And she sat silent for a few minutes, and she, I picked her up at a hospital here, and she lived on the southeast side of Norman, so I had her in the car for a while. But she said, uh, my husband was an oral surgeon. He made a lot of money. She said, when you see my house, you'll think, wow, how come this lady lives all alone in that great big house? She said, the main reason is because I've lived there most of my adult life and I'm afraid to move. <laughs> but she said, he didn't want to ever offend any of his patients or any of the other doctors. So he was a Christian, but he never let anybody know it. And she said, he expected the same from me. But he passed away seven years ago and I decided I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life Everybody I meet, I'm going to ask them if they know Jesus Christ, and if they don't, I'm going to try to introduce them. 
said, my dream is when I stand before Jesus, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He said, that's my dream. And I thought this morning some of us probably have dreams. We don't have many kids here this morning, and I guess those we have are gone. But I pray that God plants in their hearts a dream, for they can change our world. Kevin and Scott are the only young adults here because Fabian's past that stage, but God can use that youth and that energy and that ambition to dream and to fulfill that dream with the help of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you have any dreams. If you do, ask the Holy Spirit to help you fulfill them. And maybe you're walking through a jungle. Right now your life is just going through some really hard times. Pray, guide me, O Lord, great Jehovah. Keep me faithful all the way till the day dawns. And I promise you the day of the dawn will come. The darkness will pass. The wild animals will go away. We just need to be faithful all the way. Just stand together. We'll